Turn now to Zephaniah chapter 3 for our reading for our sermon text. Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 790. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty, haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word that you've given to us. We thank you that you have spoken so clearly that you have told us who you are. God, that we can come, that we can hear from you this morning and be reminded of your goodness, your glory, of your majesty, your mercy, your justice. God, we ask that you would speak. Your people are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Why are you here? Why are you here this morning? I'm not talking existentially, like, why do you exist? I mean, why did you get up this morning and get in your car and drive here for worship? We're all busy, right? We've all got a lot of things going on. We've all probably got huge to-do lists to catch up on. Maybe we just moved into a new apartment and we've got piles and piles of boxes that are unpacked and we 
feel like our, we're pulling our hair out, right? So why did we get up when we could have said, ah, I'm just gonna stay home and unpack some boxes? Well, if you're a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you are compelled by him to gather together with God's people to worship your triune God. So that's, that should be one reason. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, perhaps you're curious. Maybe you want some answers about life. And this is a good place to be. We're glad you're here. But if we want to answer this question existentially, why are we here? The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a good place to start. We saw that earlier. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now that's fundamentally about worship. That's why we're here existentially. And that's why we've decided to show up for worship today. And Zephaniah chapter 3, 9 through 20 is a great text to help us consider these things. It's a great conclusion to a short and challenging book. We saw last week the fire and the judgment of God against the whole earth. That there was no escaping unless someone endures the wrath of God for us. This passage today is pretty straightforward. It's short, only 12 verses. It's the second shortest passage that we'll cover in our entire Minor Prophets series. So that's good. Can't promise it's going to be the shortest sermon, but it's a short passage. There are a couple ways that we could categorize and analyze this text. One thing we can do is we can notice who is speaking and we can notice the mood of the speaker. And we talk about the mood, we're not talking about, oh, is Zephaniah happy or sad here? We talk about mood, we're talking about uh, the, the mood of speech, like indicative and imperative. Indicative is just simply stating what is, and imperative is giving a command. It's always something to pay attention to when we're reading our Bibles. If you're someone who likes to circle things and underline things, that's always one of those things that's, that's really helpful to, to make note of, when, especially when there's a, a command in Scripture. So verses 9 through 13 here are the Lord speaking in an indicative mood. He's just simply saying things that are true. Verses 14 through 17, then, is Zephaniah speaking, and there are a bunch of imperatives and some indicatives. And then the Lord speaks in verses 18 through 20, more indicatives, saying things that are true. So that's one way we could look at it. Uh, We see these things pretty clearly as we read through the passage. And I want us to look at this with some similar divisions, but we're going to see the time aspects in this text uh, to help us kind of break this down and see God's wonderful works on behalf of his people. So if you're taking notes, just kind of three sections that we're going to break this down into Verses 9 to 13, we're going to see future reversals. Verses 14 and 15, we're going to see a present call to worship based on God's past faithfulness. And then verses 16 through 20, we're going to see future restoration of fortunes. So I'll be mentioning those again as we get to that point. But 9 to 13, 14 to 15, and then 16 to 20. So if you kind of want an overarching argument of Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. 
It's this. A day is coming when God will reverse the curses and restore the fortunes of his people. Therefore, we must worship God in the present because of what he has done for us in the past with our hearts and eyes focused on our promised future hope. So I'll read that one more time. And again, this kind of encapsulates the past, present, and future. A day is coming when God will reverse the curses and restore the fortunes of his people. Therefore, we must worship him in the present because of what he has done for us in the past with our hearts and our eyes focused on our promised future hopes. That's kind of a mouthful, but we're going to be unpacking that as we go through. And we see this in our text here. And we also want to see what does this mean for us today as the people of God in our context at our time in redemptive history. So first, let's look at the future reversals in verses 9 through 13. And there are three of them. Now, the Lord is speaking here as he has been since verse 6. If you remember last week, we ended with verse 8, which was the summary statement of all that preceded it. And the, the message was to wait for the Lord, to wait for the day of the Lord, which is a major theme in Zephaniah and in the minor prophets. The day of the Lord is coming. God is going to judge the earth and he's going to consume it in the fire of his jealousy. Ultimately, we saw that this was pointing forward to a future return of Christ event. Now, verses 9 to 13 continue on that trajectory as the Lord describes two recipients of future reversals. The first is a worldwide emphasis that the whole world will be um, blessed by this reversal. And then the second kind of narrows in as God's people in particular are the recipients of these reversals. So the first reversal that we see is in verse nine. Look with me at verse nine. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now, what does this bring to mind? An event in the Old Testament. See some people shaking their heads. Tower of Babel, right? God changing the speech of the peoples. Genesis chapter 11. You remember the scene, the whole earth had one language and the people gathered together. They sought to build a city and a tower to make a name for themselves in order that they would not be dispersed from that place. And we're told that the Lord came down. It's actually kind of uh, funny, this puny little tower that they were building for themselves. God actually had to come down to see it, right? The God who sees all things, this image of God coming down is just to show that this tower that they were building was just this puny little thing. So God came down from heaven to see it. And in order that they might not continue their rebellion against him, the Lord confused their language so that they could not understand one another's speech. And he dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. Now, the Lord clearly wants his people to see the connection here. The words that are used five times in the Tower of Babel account, language and speech, is the same word that is used here in verse 9 of Zephaniah 3 for speech. God will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, and they will serve him with one accord, meaning they will work for God's purposes. 
They will not be working to make a name for themselves. Verse 10, then we see that those who were beyond the rivers of Cush, his worshipers, the daughters of his dispersed ones. Again, that that word dispersed here is the same word that's used in Genesis 11 for God dispersing them. So there is both a kind of a renewal of the language and a bringing back of the people. This scene here is a total reversal of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel account. If we look at the rest of verse 10, we see Cush here. This is referring to Ethiopia, which we saw in chapter 2, verse 12. They were, they were going to be judged and completely wiped out by the sword. But now here they are brought back. This here is a universal picture of the reversing effects of Babel. Uh, now, when we say universal, this does not mean universal salvation, that all people are going to be saved, but that it's a gathering of people from every nation and tribe and people and language. We saw that in Revelation chapter 7 in our New Testament reading. Now, there's one more Old Testament parallel passage. We saw this in our confession of sin and in our assurance of pardon, where Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now the word Isaiah uses for lips here is the exact same Hebrew word that Zephaniah uses for speech. Notice the contrast between the unclean lips here and the purified lips, the purified speech, and the removing of guilt and the sin being atoned for. The speech of the people being changed to a pure speech is more than just words. There is a parallel here to the forgiving and the atoning work of God to gather together a holy and purified people. This is a day of the Lord, ultimate end of history type of event. So that's the first image of reversal. The second image of reversal is seen in verses 11 to 13. This imagery has some similarities to what we see in verse 9 in terms of how God changes His people look at some of these changes on that day. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Despite their prior rebellion, God is going to show grace and mercy to his people. They will not be put to shame. God then says that he will remove from their midst, the proudly exalted ones, and they will no longer be haughty in his holy mountain. But then he will leave in their midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So this removal of the proud and exultant ones, the haughty ones, and this leaving of the low and lowly people who will seek refuge in the name of the Lord, this is something that God is going to do. He's going to do for his people. And we also see here this emphasis on location. Verse 11, God says, in my holy mountain. Verses 11 and 12, he mentions, in your midst. Verse 12 and 13, those who are left in Israel. So the restoration that is pictured here 
is a restoration of Jerusalem and a dwelling in the land, the people dwelling in the land with God, which is a major Old Testament promise and expectation that God's people had. Now, this is ultimately what is seen at the end of our Bibles in Revelation 21 and 22, with the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. We see the river of the water of life flowing through the city with the tree of life on either side, which immediately brings us back to the Garden of Eden. The ultimate reversal of the curse brought upon mankind by our first parents, where they were kicked out of Eden from the presence of God. And we'll see some more of this future restoration beginning in verse 16. But look at those last two lines of verse 13 for a second. For it says, it says, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. This here is a return to an Edenic state, Garden of Eden type state where there is no fear. The word for graze here is also used in reference to shepherds. Here, obviously, it's a, in a verbal form, but in its noun form, we find it in Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Same word here, same root word that's used for graze here. A few verses later in Psalm 23, David says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David, in Psalm 23, spoke of his present reality. But where did he find himself located? He found himself located in the valley of the shadow of death and seated at a table prepared by the Lord in the presence of his enemies. Does this sound familiar? Isn't this where we often find ourselves as God's people in this present world? It's amazing that David can simultaneously say that God makes him lie down in green pastures and leads him beside still waters. And yet he finds himself in a world that is fundamentally opposed to him and to the God he worships. This leads us nicely into our second section in verses 14 and 15, where we see a present call to worship based on God's past faithfulness. It's a present call to worship based on God's past faithfulness. Now, there are four present tense imperatives here. And then there are four past, present, and future indicatives. The imperatives in verse 14 are sing, shout, rejoice, and exalt. These commands here are very psalm-esque. In fact, these words occur a combined 95 times throughout the psalms. The words sing and rejoice here are basically synonymous. There is an element of gladness that is present here in the singing and rejoicing. The words shouting and exulting are related, in a sense, with their connection to warfare. To shout here can mean to have a, a war cry or a battle cry. And to exult can have a meaning of, of triumph, being triumphant. So shouting and exulting have that kind of element. Now, both of these themes here, rejoicing and celebrating God's triumph, they are seen in the indicatives in verse 15. 
I mentioned that they were past, present, and future statements. The past statements are seen here in the beginning of verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. This is similar to the forgiveness that we saw in verse 11. This is really good news in light of the language we saw last week about the fire of God's judgment. To have judgments taken away, to be cleared, to have our enemies cleared away. This is really good news. That's the past. That's what God has done. The present, we see in the middle of verse 15. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Again, this is a reference to, we, we saw this language in verses 11 and 12, and it is that Edenic language from the end of verse 13, that we shall graze and lie down and none shall make us afraid. So the king of Israel, the Lord, is in our midst. And then the future element here in verse 15 is that you shall never again fear evil. Again, there's a clear reference here to Psalm 23 where David says that he will fear no evil, for the Lord is with him. Now, for Zephaniah and the people of Judah, these future promises are huge in light of the fact that God's judgment in the form of the Babylonian exile is still coming their way. And how were they to be sustained in Babylon? They knew that judgment was coming. God had said it was coming. How were they to be sustained? By continuing to worship God. Think about the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends are carried away to an enemy nation, to Babylon, where they are being told that they must bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse, and they are thrown into the fiery furnace. But God delivers them. They don't stop worshiping the true God. Later, Daniel prays in defiance of the king's edict. He worships God. He's thrown into the lion's den. But God delivers him again. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and saying, well, we're not being threatened with a fiery furnace or a lion's den death. True. But do we not similarly find ourselves as exiles in a world that is opposed to God and his ways? Might not be an actual physical death, right? Might not be um, those fiery trial, fiery furnace deaths or being thrown to lions. But symbolically, we talk about people being thrown to the lions, right? We live in a world that would want to throw us to the lions for our faith in God for the way that we speak the truth about who God is in this world. And here's our challenge, just like for the people of Judah in Zephaniah's day. We must be a people who faithfully worship our covenant-keeping God, regardless of our circumstances. We must be a people who faithfully worship our covenant-keeping God, regardless of our circumstances. Every week we gather here together for worship to be reminded by God and to remind one another and to declare together who God is and what he has done for us. Now that always involves looking back, 
so we can live faithfully in the present and look forward with hope to the future. We talk about these things all the time around here. We use concepts like already and not yet. We talk about our identity and our calling related to past, present, and future things. We ask questions like, who are we and what does it mean to live out our calling as Christians in this world? We're not here to be innovative. We're not trying to give you some new ideas or insights that will improve your life, right? The 10 best ways to improve your marriage. We want you to have good, good and better marriages, but we're not trying to do some new and innovative thing. James and I aren't looking for book deals so we can have these fresh new ideas. We're Honestly, we're super boring, right? Because we're just telling you the same thing that's being, been being talked about for thousands of years. There's nothing new here. There's nothing that needs, there's no flair that needs to be added. Come here and enjoy the boringness, right? We're boring. What we're talking about isn't boring, but we're boring. We're not trying to give you new flashy stuff. All we're doing is retelling the story of the gospel week in and week out. And let's be honest, life in this world is hard. There are challenges for us at so many levels. A lot of times we like to joke about first world problems, right? We're complaining about something that is just something that's probably a result of some comfort that we have. And, and we say, oh, it's just a first world problem. And obviously that's true in a sense, right? We do have it easy compared to most people in the world. But it doesn't mean that our external comforts in this life mitigate our internal struggles or the reality of the spiritual battle that we're in. There are challenges that abound for people in this world, for Christians in this world. And the good news is that our God is faithful and that he will do what he has said he will do. He has not left us in the dark about what he is going to do. He has told us in his word. So wherever you are at today, whether you're struggling with life in this world in physical or material ways, maybe financial struggles, maybe relational struggles, or whether you're having serious spiritual struggles, maybe you're doubting the goodness and faithfulness of God. Does God really love me? Why is life so hard if he really does? Why do I struggle so much with sin if God's spirit is really living inside of me? These are all questions that we shouldn't shy away from asking. And we have biblical warrant to ask God hard questions. Like, how long, O oh Lord? And why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Questions that David asked in the Psalms as he worshiped and sang to the Lord. David worshiped God by asking God hard questions. So how do we live faithfully in the present? while waiting for our future hope. I think we can think about this individually and corporately. Individually, we should be participating in regular worship of God. Now, some obvious ways, right? Reading our Bibles, praying, singing. Uh, we talked yesterday at our, uh, we had a worship training. We talked about our uh, Livingstone Church playlist. We have a, a Spotify playlist, or if you have Apple Music, I can send you the link to the Apple Music playlist with all the songs that we sing here. Now, obviously you can sing other songs, but we talked about familiarizing ourselves with the songs that we sing week in and week out. 
put the playlist on and sing along. Worship God when you're driving in your car or when you're working out or whatever. People at the gym might think you're crazy. Who cares? So regularly, individually worshiping God. And then regularly, corporately worshiping God. We gather together to read and to sing and to pray and to hear God's word preached. It's just a simple way to grow in our relationship with the Lord, that repetition and that practice. If you talk to anyone who's really good at any type of skill and you ask them how they got better at it, they didn't just like roll out of bed one day and become a concert pianist. Uh, a couple of my younger boys are, have taken up violin recently and they have to practice regularly, right? I looked up professional violinists practice from like about three to five hours a day. That blows my mind. Like, I don't think I could do that. But if you want to maintain that level of expertise, three to five hours a day. Now, I'm not saying you have to read your Bibles and pray for three to five hours a day. But if we want to grow as Christians, that, that model, that realization that there's repetition, there's practice that goes into that, both individually and corporately as we gather together. Now, if our chief end, again, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, A, that doesn't just happen, right? And B, it's not something that we wait until heaven to start doing. We must let God's future promises fuel our present worship. We must let God's future promises fuel our present worship. Now, if you look at the sermon title, I put down present worship fuels future hope. And I just said future promises fuel our present worship. But I think it works both ways, right? Our, the future promises of God should fuel us in our present worship. And as we gather to worship presently, that should fuel our hope in God's future promises. The emphasis on future hope and restoration is what we see in verses 16 through 20. 16, verse 16 in the beginning of 17 is a repetition of themes that we have already seen. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Then in the next section of verse 17, we see what one scholar calls one of the boldest statements in the whole Bible. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, there's a little bit of a debate about this second line. Thomas McComiskey, in his commentary, suggests an alternate translation for the phrase we see here, he will quiet you by his love, which many scholars support. And it would be something like, he will be silent in his love. Now, McComiskey sees a progression here for God from inner joy, he will rejoice over you with gladness, to silent adoration, he will be silent in his love, to then vocal exaltation, he will exalt over you with loud singing. This is mind-blowing, that the God of all creation the one to whom all praise and adoration is due, the one who owes us nothing and would be 100% justified in pouring out every ounce of his wrath upon us for our sin and our rebellion, 
This God is our King and Savior who is in our midst, who is mighty to save, who rejoices and exalts the very things that we were commanded to do in verse 14. He does these things over us. We have to ask how and why. Let's look first at what the Lord says he will do in verse 20. It says, at that time, I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, what a beautiful description this is of what our God will do for us, for our good and for his glory. I think one of the closest parallels to this is in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5, which speaks about the future salvation of Jerusalem. It says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silence, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more, no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What greater picture of joy and delight is there than the celebration of a wedding feast? Human history began with a marriage that was flawless. Two sinless people enjoying intimacy with God their bridegroom, and with one another for a short time untainted by the pain and the sorrow that would follow. But we all know how the story goes. And from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19, which is our present reality, there is a deep longing for restoration, a longing for things to return to the way in which they once were. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes this restoration and return possible. After chapter upon chapter of judgment and the wrath of God being poured out upon sinful humanity from Revelation 8 through 18, the, the, the scene returns to heaven where it was in chapter 7 that we saw earlier. This is what John writes beginning in Revelation 19.6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, it was the similar language there, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has invited you and me to his marriage supper where we will feast with him and worship him for all of eternity. We're not there yet, friends, but we will be soon. And part of our worship as we wait and prepare is laid out for us right here today in this meal. This is a foretaste of the feast that is to come, where we will sing hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Are we making ourselves ready? That is what our worship in the present is meant to do, to fuel our future hope. So I want to return to my opening question. Why are you here? Are you here because you've got it all figured out? Because you're self-sufficient and you have no need of a savior? Or are you here because you know and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your only hope? Your only hope in life and death, that his death on the cross in your place is the only way that you can have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God. That's who this table is for. That's who this invitation to come, to rejoice, to exalt, to feast, that's who this is extended to. The invitation is not just to those who are members of Livingstone Church, not just to people who are Presbyterian, it's to all those who have put their trust in Christ. We ask that you would be someone who is a baptized believer who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church, meaning that you are not under church discipline in some other place and are coming here. If that's you, if that's true of you, you are invited to come to this table.